It doesn't necessarily have to be going into a, you know, the practice of law. You know, as I mentioned earlier, my story is I went into law school never intending to practice law. And I think that my, you know, my background in rhetoric and professional writing and in philosophy, I think it prepared me well to have that optionality that I could go into law school and say, I may never practice law. And I think that's the beauty of a humanities degree is just that it leaves so many avenues open to you. A lot of people go to university with one career idea in mind, but leave with a different plan. Dan Mickak did that twice. A hockey and baseball fan, Dan entered Waterloo's English rhetoric and professional writing program with dreams of becoming a sports journalist. But after some time working with Imprint, those aspirations faded. Still focused on a career in sport, Dan went to law school. Maybe he could manage players. Dan did become a lawyer, but he doesn't work with athletes or sports teams. A decade into his career, he manages a team of lawyers at Lightspeed, a global software company listed on the Toronto and New York stock exchanges. He joins today's podcast to explain how he got here and to offer some advice for aspiring lawyers. Keep listening. Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much, Megan, for having me. Yeah. So let's uh, let's start with your first job and law school. It sounds like you found that first job by just kind of going with the flow. Um, can you tell me about the formal recruitment process you found yourself in and where did it lead you after graduation? Yeah. Let me actually backtrack a little bit earlier than that as we start. Because um, I, you know, my story is one sort of, of, of several different career objectives and uh, it definitely follows that pattern of just going with the flow. So um, you know, very early on in my life when I was still in, in school, um, high school, I, you know, I sort of realized I was never going to be a professional athlete being such a, a passionate sports fan. I wanted to find a way that I could still work in the sports field. And so I sort of throughout my high school years figured sports journalism was the way to go. Um, and I, you know, in the course of uh, in the course of exploring that at the high school level, and then I spent a lot of time when I was at the University of Waterloo working on the imprint newspaper. Sort of realized that you know what, sports journalism maybe isn't for me. Um, and I thought to myself, well, okay, I'm I'm taking the English rhetoric and professional writing program. What's the next logical step? And I so I wrote the LSAT sort of on a whim, and decided, hey, maybe I can go to law school and be a sports agent. Still keeping with the dream of you know, being involved in sports in some way. Um, I was never a particularly uh, strong athlete. I was, a, I enjoyed playing a lot of sports, but I never played at a high level or anything like that to sort of be predisposed to working with athletes like that. But it was a passion of mine and I wanted to see if I could do it. And so when I joined law school, um, you know, that was the goal. Never really intended, frankly, even write a bar exam or practice law. I uh, had no idea, you know, one of the big things you hear about when you start law school is, you know, you want to end up with a Bay Street law firm or a Wall Street law firm. And I really didn't know what either of those things was when I started law school. It certainly wasn't my goal or my objective. Um, but getting caught up in the flow of, you know, your classmates at law school and uh, decided to participate in this in this process that they call on-campus interviews or OCIs for short. And this is sort of like a speed dating game between you know, these Bay Street and Wall Street law firms and, and law students to try to bring in their summer student and then their first year lawyer class. And so I interviewed with several firms, you know, again, just sort of all my classmates, all my friends were doing it. So I figured I would try it too. And I landed with a really, really excellent law firm, uh, established some really strong connections with some folks there. 
um, ironically, a number of people who were big sports fans as well. So we sort of had that friendly social connection too. And, and I said, okay, you know what? Well, maybe I'll try this whole law practice thing for a few years and see how it goes. So, I, you know, well, I never really ended up representing athletes or involved in sports in that way. Uh, it was a very organic development for me to actually go into the practice of law, something I never really intended to do. Uh, yeah, that's great. I really love that the uh, enthusiasm that you have for sports did end up uh, helping, even if it was on like a personal connections level. <laughs> it's funny. One of the best piece of, pieces of advice I ever got going into that on-campus interviews process was, you know, include something interesting about yourself as sort of the very last line in your CV. That way you have, you know, a way to establish rapport with the people who are interviewing you. And so the last line on my CV at that time was dedicated Toronto Maple Leafs fan. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You know what? Um, I have a one of my bosses at a previous job always had this saying that I thought was just so true. We like to like the likers. So if people like us or if people if we think that people like something similar to similar to us, uh, it just creates like a natural bond uh, and, and creates an organic uh, process for, for the workplace. So that's really great. I really love the go with the flow mentality. And it really worked out for you. Like you said, you ended up at a really uh, great firm and you worked in a, a private practice that focused on capital markets. But eventually you left to work as an in-house lawyer at local company, Desire to Learn. Um how did that first job provide a good foundation for that next step to desire to learn? And then I, I'm sure that there were a lot of areas that were new to you as well. There were for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, that I was very fortunate uh, to get placed through that OCI on campus interview process with a law firm that was a very small office of a very large, well-known international law firm. The firm is called Skadden Arps. And in the Toronto office of that firm, there were only about 11 or 12 lawyers, uh, a couple of senior partners, a couple of associates. It was a very close-knit group. But what it afforded me was the opportunity immediately to start my legal career to jump into the deep end with some of these files. You know, I think uh, where if I was in a larger firm, a larger office even, um, it would be easy to get lost in the shuffle. But I was afforded a unique opportunity to work directly with senior partners at our firm, work on big deals with, you know, household names uh, in the in the sort of Canadian business industry, large enterprises that everyone has heard of, um, and on huge deals, you know, companies raising a billion dollars in some instances on the capital markets. Um, and so to get that firsthand experience and to see how companies are operated, um, you know, the the life of a, of a junior lawyer, particularly a law firm, is not always glamorous. Um, there's a lot of document review, a uh, process we call due diligence, that can be very, very cumbersome. Uh, it takes a lot of hours. You're often working evenings or weekends. Um, but what it does give you is it gives you great insight into the inner workings of a business. And so having had many opportunities to do that with you know, some of the household name companies that we all know in Canada, um, it, it really gave me a great sense of what it meant to be a lawyer within a business, uh, the way that businesses are really a, a confluence of contracts and, and you know, other legal documents and, and, and how that takes shape. Uh, and I was able to parlay that, I think, into a very well-rounded experience that benefited me greatly at Desire to Learn. To answer your second question, though, you know, I was working strictly in capital markets doing 
um, you know, what we call securities work, corporate work, uh, some mergers and acquisitions too. But uh, when you move in-house with a company as opposed to being in private practice, um, it's a very different way to practice. I, w- I, I mentor some younger lawyers here and there. And, and one of the things I always tell them, the difference between practicing in private practice and moving in-house is in private practice, you give the right legal advice. In-house, your job is to give the right advice for the business. Mm. And that was something that I, I needed to learn. Um, you know, I took, when I first started working at Desire to Learn, I had a real private practice mindset and I was always going to deliver the right legal answer. You know, uh, I was ready to draft that memo that I was used to drafting in private practice. Um, and it wasn't always something that was well received by the, you know, the business folks that I was working with then, you know, it was a very dynamic environment at Desire to Learn. Um, it was a very fast paced environment, high growth environment. Um, and one in which it was really important to be able to deliver the right advice for the business. And that took me a while to adapt to that and to understand what it was that my stakeholders were were needing from me and how I could help them to accomplish their objectives. So that was one of the main things I had to learn. There were substantive areas of the law, too, that I'd never practiced before. I'd never practiced employment law. I'm a self-taught employment lawyer now. Um, you know, I benefited from working with some strong other, uh, you know, colleagues or, or senior lawyers while I was at Desire to Learn at times who, who had some experience with that or even working with some outside counsel on files who I was able to learn from uh, in that area. Um, but, uh, but it was really learning how to be a good lawyer for the business that I was representing that was the biggest lesson and the biggest, uh, the, the steepest hill for me to climb at Desire to Learn. Wow. Yeah, that's such an interesting answer. I don't know anything about being a lawyer, but um, I'm already kind of making parallels to uh, working for different companies as a a writer and and marketer. I'm sure that's actually um, that concept is something that uh, a lot of different people in different industries uh, have to learn. So you really went with the flow at the beginning of your career, like we've said, but when it came time to move on from desire to learn, you became really intentional about your next step. You wanted to find the right job and you really wanted to take your time and make sure it was the right job before moving on. Um, And you moved to uh, another startup called Lightspeed. How did you know that Lightspeed was the right move? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I think it was around, I spent, I think, seven years in total a desire to learn uh, in various roles, sort of moving up the chain as I as I could, you know, letting my work speak for itself as much as I could. Um, after about five years there, though, I realized that my ambitions lie in, in you know, running a team, building a team. Um, you know, I was working for a, 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 a great team at, at Desire to Learn with great people, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but my ambitions were were beyond that. And so I sort of around my fifth year there, started looking for an opportunity to become a general counsel uh, somewhere else and to, to run a team and to build a team. Um, and I, I sort of set for myself some discipline in doing that. You know, I didn't want to jump at the first opportunity that would present itself because not all opportunities are created equal uh, in the legal space or otherwise. You know, I wanted to find a company that would grow with me. I wanted to find an opportunity that would enable me to fulfill my objectives it was important for me that I not just jump at the first opportunity to present itself because that not, might not be the right opportunity. So I actually ended up turning down my first two offers to become a general counsel and to lead a team because the companies uh, that were offering them, um, you know, there were a variety of reasons, whether I didn't feel like they were valuing the function the way I wanted them to uh, or other reasons. Um, and it wasn't until 
about 18 months after I'd started looking that I developed a really close relationship um, with a, a gentleman named Brandon Nussi, uh, who was the CFO at Desire to Learn while I was there. And he told me one day, he took me aside and he said, Dan, I'm, I'm leaving for another company. It's called Lightspeed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he, the reason he told me, I think he, he and I had just always had a close relationship and he was sort of slowly telling the people that he was close with. And I immediately, I always joke with him. I say, you know, I remember that moment. I remember getting down on my knees and begging you to take me with you. <laughs> it wasn't quite <laughs> like that, but I certainly did. I, you know, I definitely did use the words, please take me with you. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I think, um, it, it certainly wasn't his intention, intention initially to, to bring me along with him, but we did have a very strong working relationship. And, and over the ensuing three or four months, you know, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty adamant that I was going to go along with him. And I really, I, I put a lot on him to, to say, Hey, you really need to consider me for this position. I knew about Lightspeed. Um, you know, Lightspeed at that stage was less startup and more scale up. In fact, very much where desire to learn was at that stage too. Um, you know, it was, it had taken on a few rounds of funding and, um, you know, they had, uh, some really, some ambitions that really resonated with me, you know, very early on in my career, I'd had the opportunity to work on some initial public offerings in private practice. And uh, when I joined Desire to Learn, uh, it was under the auspices of helping them to get ready for their initial public offering as well. And that was the same narrative that, that Lightspeed was writing. They were getting ready for their initial public offering. And, and so it was, it was sort of that opportunity um, to go to another company that was high growth, uh, at that time, there were only two lawyers uh, in-house at Lightspeed, and, and I was you know, going to have the opportunity to build out that team, which was very much aligned with my objectives. And it was a known commodity for me. Um, you know, as someone I really trusted had already done the due diligence on this company, had already vetted the opportunity. And you know, I think the, the really funny story, and I tell this to any candidate that I interview for a job at Lightspeed, that um, you know, when I joined Lightspeed in September of 2018, I thought we were going to kick off the IPO process in mm. nine months after I'd started. We actually ended up kicking it off a few weeks after I started and finishing it around the time that I expected that we would, uh, that we would have been starting it uh, in March of 2019. <laughs> so we went, we went public on the Toronto stock exchange in March of 2019. It was a, it was a very successful IPO. One of the, the most exciting journeys I've ever been on in my career. Um, my family didn't see me much for the six months leading up to it because it was so much work to, you know, prepare for this, this massive sort of cultural transition within a company from being a private company and the accountabilities that come with that to being a public company and the accountabilities that come with that. But it was very fulfilling, uh, the journey to get there. And, um, and it was great that we were able to succeed in doing it. Yeah. Um, what a great project to get to kick off right away. And I also really love the story of how you ended up um, at Lightspeed, you know, I think that you can spend months looking for your next step and then it can just happen in such an organic way that you aren't necessarily expecting. Um, so I think that's a, a really great example. Also really interesting to hear that, um, how intentional you were, um, to the point where you were turning down offers because it just didn't quite feel right. Do you have any advice um, for people who are looking for uh, that next step in, in yeah, what to look I, for? I do, certainly. You know, I think one of the, the things that I did when I started, when, I, when I, I made the firm decision that it was time to look for another opportunity is, and I said earlier that I was very disciplined in my approach. And, I, you know, I think I was in terms of being able to evaluate the opportunity. But the other thing I was doing is 
I set out to move the needle for myself every day to make that next step. So I, and I actually started tracking, you know, what did I do today that would further myself towards my goal of, you know, leading a team, of building a team, of joining a company that I could grow with in the, in that leadership position, in that general counsel position. And I would track it. So in some, some days it was just having a conversation with somebody I hadn't, I hadn't spoken with before. Um, other days it was, you know, updating my CV for a specific opportunity. Um, or, or maybe it was, um, you know, uh, reading some article about how to be a, a general account, but something that would further my own career growth. So not something that I was doing in the context of my job and my responsibilities to desire to learn at the time, but something that was for me from a personal growth perspective. And I was disciplined in trying to do that every day. Um, mm -hmm. And I did that every day for a solid 18 months and, and beyond until, you know, one day this opportunity, for lack of a better term, fell in my lap. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, the biggest advice I would give is, is one of patience. Um, you know, it, someone once said to me, and it was in the context of, um, of a, a salary discussion, um, but they once said to me, what's $10,000 in the context of a career? Mm -hmm. And $10,000, you know, at, at various stages in my career has seemed like a lot of, it is a lot of money. It even seems like a lot of money to me now. But when you think about how long you work for, and when you think about, you know, all the things you're going to do, all the growth that you're going to have throughout your career, um, making a decision. And, and, you know, it's not about the amount. It's not about the $10,000. It's about looking at what's directly in front of you and assessing, is this really the right path for me? Mm -hmm. You know, don't just jump at the money. Don't just jump at the opportunity that is presenting itself. Do your diligence. Be patient, make sure it's the right one for you. And it puts you on the path towards accomplishing your goals. And I think I was really able to do that. And, you know, as I was sort of writing my narrative, I was really able to, to live by that rule of patience, uh, be deliberate in my approach. Uh, and, and it worked out great for me. Yeah, great advice. Um, and I think very, um, very timely. It feels very timely right now <laughs> in 2022 sure. when there's so much talk about going back to the office and quiet quitting and people not knowing what they want. So uh, thanks for that. That's great. So to end, I think I'd like to go back to the very beginning of your career when you were an English and professional writing student like me and like so many other alumni, your humanities mm -hmm. degree really took you down a totally unexpected path. How has your first degree in English helped you in your career? And do you have any advice that you'd give to students or young, grad or young grads who aren't really sure what to do with an arts degree? Yeah, yeah, sure. So let me, let me answer your first question first about, you know, thinking back to my, my journey in humanities. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I also did a minor in philosophy. And, um, you know, there were, I think back still, I've got a good group of, of friends from the University of Waterloo. And we, we talk about this sometimes that, you know, there were courses I took at the University of Waterloo. I remember one was was two semesters in applied English grammar, which sounds like one of the driest subjects you could possibly take. Um, but the way that I learned how to compose my writing, how to communicate through that class and the way that, you know, language is is malleable and the way that you can, you can twist language. I mean, that is invaluable as a lawyer to have, you know, strong written communication skills and understanding how different components of sentences fit together. That, that's maybe a little boring example. I also remember taking a class in intentional logic, um, which, you know, uh, to me was actually kind of groundbreaking at the time. Uh, it was a philosophy class at St. Jerome's University, I believe. 
Um, and it, it, uh, it was all about reducing arguments almost into mathematical equations. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I remember at the time thinking, wow, like this is, you know, again, it wasn't, the, it was, a, it was a reasonably dry subject. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm making myself sound dry here, which is probably appropriate <laughs> for a lawyer, but, um, you know, I, I really like the, the thought to me that I can take a couple of sentences and reduce them into their component parts and, and prove them out. You know, like the concept of the syllogism, I remember is something that we learned in that class. And there was, it was grounded in philosophy. And I, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, hey, this is just interesting to me. And I, I've always remembered that through my career of some of the things that I've learned are just so critical to being a lawyer. Because in the end, being a lawyer is all about communication. Mm -hmm. And the thing, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the difference between being in private practice and being in-house is in private practice, you give the right legal advice, but in-house, you give the right advice for the business. That all reduces down to strong communication skills, understanding your audience, understanding what it's going to take to convince your audience of something, to convey your point. That's what rhetoric is, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding what it, you know, understanding your, your audience and then how to communicate properly to that. And I, 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 there were so many classes I took at the University of Waterloo that prepared me really, really well for that. And even frankly, for law school, you know, I had, I had other colleagues in law school who'd come from business backgrounds or come from science backgrounds. And I think the number one thing that I had that was an advantage for me in law school and to get the job that I did, I had to get good marks in law school, but having those communication skills, having that foundation to be able to communicate clearly and to be able to deliver on what your audience wants or expects from you um, gave me a leg up in law school. Um, so I think that, you know, a, a humanities degree, particularly one in English or, or rhetoric and professional writing, I mean, it's, I can't think of a better way to have prepared me for the practice of law because I use it every single day. Um, and I think that's the beauty. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be going into a, you know, the practice of law, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, my story is I went into law school never intending to practice law. And I think that my, you know, my background in rhetoric and professional writing and in philosophy, I think it prepared me well to have that optionality that I could go into law school and say, I may never practice law. And I think that's the beauty of a humanities degree is just that it leaves so many avenues open to you. You know, I mean, there are, there are certainly traditional perceptions of what a humanities student is going to go into, whether it be teaching or whether it be, um, you know, law or, or, or something like that. But really, you know, you know, no boundaries with that degree because the ability to communicate, the ability to win over hearts and minds, the ability to influence people. I mean, that in and of itself is, is just so invaluable. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I complemented that with another degree, a law degree. Um, and I, I certainly, I wouldn't go back and do that over again. I think that was, I think that was a great decision. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, when I say I wouldn't do it over again, I wouldn't revisit that decision because it was a very strong decision to complement my humanities degree with another one. But, um, you know, it was uh, it was keeping my avenues open. That was the greatest value that my humanities degree gave me. And so my advice, I, you know, to a student who's who's studying humanities right now. And I think, again, drawing from my my whole story is patience. Um, you know, you don't have to make your decision early as to what you want to do. Uh, because there are lots of options available to you. And you know, choosing the right one is just the most important thing for you. I, you know, someone, a mentor of mine early in my career said to me, there are really three things you need to be happy in your career. You need to be compensated well, and you need to enjoy the people you're working with. And above all else, you need to be learning. 
And, you know, for me, the humanities is about being a lifelong learner and having that patience is about ensuring that you're putting yourself in a position to always grow in your career. And I think that's what I was able to do. Yeah, um, that's some advice that I probably could have used <laughs> when I was doing my arts and science, um, my interdisciplinary degree uh, in undergrad um, as someone who um, went to school having no particular ambition for a certain profession. Uh, but, and I think there are a lot of students out there um, who, who are in that boat. Uh, and I, I love what you said in general about how um, rhetoric and um, understanding your audience has helped you. Um, we, we always hire co-op students uh, in our office. And um, something that I've noticed when um, coaching different co-op students about their writing and, uh, and content creation is that some students who have put a lot of thought and work into those humanities-based um, things, the critical thinking and the rhetoric, they just like understand the point of things. Mm -hmm. They understand the core point of like why they're doing, why they're writing the thing, what the message is that they need to get across. And it just bleeds out into everything uh, that they, that they end up doing. It's a great skill. And, you know, to reinforce that point, uh, and I see this all the time, frankly, even with some of the lawyers I work with, just understanding the assignment. When I was in law school, the people who did best on their law school exams were the people who gave the professor, who directly answered the professor's question on the law school exam. Yeah. The people I see who do best in business and in law are the people who directly answer their stakeholders' question when they're responding to it. And there is a tendency, I think it's human nature, to not necessarily answer the question we're given. Um, but I think one of the things that I learned in the context of my, my English rhetoric degree at Waterloo is to make sure again that you understand what you're being what is being asked of you what does your audience want and making sure that you're responsive to that um, it's it's harder than it sounds it sounds like such a simple thing just you know give the people what they want <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's you know when you're faced with a law school exam and you know certain things and you think that there's knowledge that could be valuable to the you know to the overall solution um, but you miss the actual point of the exam question, it's, mm -hmm. it's a real problem. So remembering that, you know, hey, there's a specific thing being sought of me here and delivering on that specific thing. It's almost about execution, right? Yeah. Dan, uh, this has been really great to talk to you and learn some more about, about your career and uh, your time at Waterloo and beyond. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow, subscribe, like, whatever your podcast player lets you do. Uncharted is produced and hosted by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.